Hi, my name is Brandon Duong, and you're listening to Shelter Force. There's a subtle implication in the term creative placemaking, namely that it involves creating a sense of place where none existed prior. Each year, communities invest millions of dollars into such initiatives, constructing large cultural venues or bringing in notable artists and experts to help spur revitalization. But do these communities really lack a sense of place? How do longtime residents of these neighborhoods feel about that? In June of 2021, I sat down and discussed those questions with Douglas Ferrand and Margot Simmons, two of the lead organizers for the Music City program in Orange, New Jersey, a grassroots asset-based community development initiative that uses music making as a tool for connection, civic engagement, and creative placekeeping, which is defined by the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture as quote, the active care and maintenance of a place and its social fabric by the people who live and work there. It is not just preserving buildings, but keeping the cultural memories associated with a locale alive, while supporting the ability of local people to maintain their way of life as they choose, end quote. At the time of this recording, cases of the Delta variant finally seemed to be under control, and the Omicron variant had not yet emerged. Amidst the pandemic, organizers from the Music City program came up with some creative ways to continue arts programming in spite of the pandemic, largely relying on community networks instead of large arts institutions. Music City is run by the University of Orange, a nonprofit community organization focused on restoration urbanism, which acknowledges that policies and planning decisions rooted in segregation have left cities physically and socially fractured. It also emphasizes the need for reweaving the social fabric and reconnecting physical spaces in the fight for equity. Before I continue, I need to note that this interview has been edited for clarity. My first question was how the Music City program started. There's really kind of a core of four four of us who who are behind Music City. So it's Margot and I, and then our two kind of lead organizers with Music City are Ray Ray Sykes, uh, who's a, a hip hop musician and producer from Orange, and Cesar Presa, who's um, came to Orange when he's pretty young. He's from Uruguay originally. Um, he's a, a guitarist and bassist and does a good chunk of music production too and so the four of us really got to know each other through a youth arts collective called Orange Inc um, that mm-hmm. uh, is kind of adjacent to University of Orange for many years uh, and then coming to meet Margot through University of Orange specifically and the four of us as we became got to know each other and kind of entered into conversation with one another recognizing that we'd each each one of us been working with music in the city for for some time, but each of us working in very different in music with very different ways. Margot had been teaching these free community music theory classes for some years. Uh, I'd been running a music education program in the after school space of Oakwood Avenue Community School. Uh, Ray um, uh, had a, a kind of music studio, and he has this practice that he talks about as sort of keeping an ear to the street. So he make sure that his studio was open so young people in the city to come in and record and practice. He'd also host uh, hip-hop open mics uh, throughout the year and was really committed to having spaces where young hip-hop artists, young rap artists could come and practice and, and you know, practice their, their art. Uh, and Cesar also, uh, just like a, a musician around town, um, working both with education but also very much embedded in sort of a Essex County like scene uh, and so that 
you know, this idea of recognizing this kind of abundant asset and resource of music in the community really came from our four, the four of us having these different practices and different experiences working with music in Orange over the years and wondering, you know, starting to explore the ways in which we could work together to to bridge connections between, as Margot mentioned, these other ways very siloed communities. The program of Music City to involve, you know, classes, uh, workshops, concert series, um, and an instrumental rental library that we're building so that there wow. can be instruments, you know, for for people to who would like to study them, um, uh, instrumental rental at very low cost uh, for community members who want to to do that. Um, our aim is to to <clears throat> to create or to work on and or to establish a really a multi generational musical community. Um, our classes are open to people of all ages. And we have had the people represented from different age groups in the classes, and our our concert series involved that too. You know, they're 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 school children that perform as well as established uh, members of the community. We work with uh, all ranges of abilities. It's the music. Uh, is the important thing. We don't make a distinction between amateur and professional. We're we're create we work to create a kind of a, as we say in, in our write up, a, a real democratic um, music community where everyone is. I mean the the whole. I think one of the the aims of the University of Orange is that that people learn from each other. That everyone is, has something that they can teach. And everyone has something that they can learn, so that the asset, the real, the way to build the asset of a community is for people learning and teaching each other, learning from and teaching each other. And so, that's sort of like that's what we do in Music City with creating this multi generational atmosphere of learning and teaching and doing. Our very first Music City event was was December first, <laughs> twenty sixteen, a commemoration of. Uh, yeah, we, we yeah, you know, we we think about collective recovery a lot, and the fact that Music City's kind of first phase and formative phase happened under the Trump administration, uh, which is its own its its own kind of crisis, but also a, a you know a, a sort of result of a long history of crises <laughs> going back to the 1500s, right? Um, right. And so, you know, to think about the fact that our first, you know, I think it's significant to think that our first event, which we planned as an uh, anniversary, you know, our, is that one of our annual events is Remembering Rosa, which was the first event we did. And it's a choir concert where we invite school choirs and church choirs to come and perform and sing together in observance of the anniversary of Rosa Parks' act of civil disobedience, but also lifting up both the feat of solidarity and organizing following her her refusing to give up her bus seat that enabled in pre-internet days the the planning and implementation of a statewide bus boycott in just four days, right? She refused to give up her seat on December 1st and December 5th, Monday, December 5th, 
the the buses rolled. You know, Martin Luther King writes about how the buses rolled past his home, and there was not a single person on the buses on the morning of December 5th. But also lift up the fact that Rosa Parks didn't just decide to do this out of nowhere, that she was a student at the Highlander Center, that she was a committed organizer and activist who was constantly learning how to do this work. Um, yeah. And so the fact that Music City kind of emerged from this, you know, by like we first stepped, our first event was this, this celebration of education, lifelong education, solidarity, organizing, and connection in the wake of Trump's election, I think has really shaped mm-hmm. how we think about music in the context of placemaking in particular. Um mm-hmm. And the importance of, of yeah, this idea of asset-based community development that we, you know, we we didn't come from a place of oh, music is cool, therefore we should do placemaking with music. But it's that the music was here, and this program yeah. really emerges from these grassroots networks of musicians and music students, and and music being such a deep part of community here, and the by addressing this through University of Orange's lens of restoration urbanism, we managed to avoid the ways in which creative placemaking actually can be a tool of gentrification and displacement and anchor it in in a, a more equitable and radical politics that emphasizes the importance of folks being able to self-determine their lives in the places that they live and, and that that it needs the placemaking needs to be in service of folks being able to stay where they are in their homes and their communities. This displacement of local artists in favor of larger arts institutions has been a major point of conflict in other parts of the country as well. In 2017, artists and activists in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles fought furiously against the openings of several high-end art galleries, which they say contributed to the erasure of the largely Latinx working-class culture. In New York City, the Chinatown Art Brigade described how a string of new art galleries helped raise rents in the area, displacing low-income businesses and tenants. It raises the question, instead of bringing in outside artists, what can communities do to support local musicians and cultivate an environment where they can thrive? We had, in October of 2020, we we had the first reclaiming public spaces. We had a, 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 a festival as were of where people played outside and sort of rec- in an order to reclaim public space and and um and have music and combine that with restaurants and and sort of mutually help musicians and restaurants together and we asked at the after that we asked we asked our the participants what would what would uh, what did they think would would help support them or help support music in the area? It needs to be that the arts are essential um, to one's education, to one's place, you know, to recognition of one's place in the world. The arts, arts development as an asset of the, I think it's really important that music education be strong um, um, and offered. I would just strengthen the arts programs. <laughs> uh, I think that would go a long way toward supporting musicians because then you grow up with the fact that, yeah, I, what I do is important. It's not just uh, something that I'm going to do on the weekends or uh, in the evening, and I've really got to get a day job. 
as a teacher at a university, I, I've encountered so many parents who wanting their kids, of course, to get, <clears throat> you know, to to get a decent job and do not want them to do to, to study music because it it brings no no financial uh, you know uh, uh, remuneration. So this sort of attitude that that it's just superfluous. You don't get paid for it. You won't ever make a living at it. I mean, I think to get the root to the root of that issue is a real concern for me and I think you know if we could somehow root that out and value value the arts would be the first step um, yeah I'd also say that um, and and the festival that Margot started to talk about back in October I think is a really good example of how our thinking has evolved on this because I think this is a really challenging question yeah. Um, but in you know in the midst of the pandemic, normally we have a one of our other bigger programs is an annual citywide festival that happens usually in May every year. But obviously May 2020 it was cancelled due to the pandemic. And in October we we kind of reformed and reshaped the festival, coming from a place of concern around COVID safety. But it's unlocked unlocked so much. So instead of having the festival in one location. Um, we partnered with local restaurants to have restaurants host musicians not in the restaurant but uh, in kind okay. of the public space outside or close to restaurants outdoor seating. And what came, you know, is this kind of magical day where we had musicians playing outdoors just like on the sidewalk or, you know, it wasn't even in parks. It was really just in this everyday kind of pedestrian public space. And we, we had a lot of conversations with musicians and organizers and restaurant owners in the aftermath of this, thinking really about trying to articulate what we'd experienced on that day and what was emerging, but also with this lens of, of you know, what, what, what really would a, what would a city that really supports musicians and musicianship at all levels look like. And I think what really came out of that was recognizing that the answer doesn't lie in, you know, so often as to your point, Brandon, you know, sort of initiatives around, especially with regards to sort of placemaking in the arts. It's a very top-down kind of orientation where, where folks think right. about it as like municipal funding being available for mural programs and this kind of thing. But what we realize actually is is something about the yeah this you know we had a lot of interesting conversations around sort of the the sort of fugitive and transient nature of sound and of music in particular and you know in particular in a place like Orange the way this connects to sort of um, you know kind of context around the black radical tradition and so on but recognizing that and the actually what we want and what what has worked especially looking historically at this is cultivating very horizontal networks of connection between organizations businesses artists really this idea of cultivating an ecosystem that is supportive of creative endeavor much more so than trying to advocate for sort of you know i mean funding is important of course but it's it dries up very easily. It's the first thing that gets cut when, you know, crisis hits. Um, and also I think that programs that rely too heavily on municipal municipal support or, or even I think that applies to school districts as well, it ends up creating 
still very siloed situations where it's artists who have an in, artists or like organizations that have a particular in with um, with government municipal institutions that end up getting all of this funding and it doesn't actually filter out to other communities. So what we're working on in Orange is ways that we can work to connect networks of restaurant owners with business owners, with, with musicians, um, ways that we can connect not so much the whole school system, but individual teachers who are sort of aligned with this way of thinking about music, also with this network of organizations and businesses in the city, and the ways that this proliferates and generates a sort of kind of a mutual aid almost um, to provide a real specific example, just this past month in May, we did a follow-up festival, our annual festival, where we stuck with this model of partnering with local restaurants and having music in the public space, um, and also with a goal of driving increased business to restaurants. And the restaurant owners were really happy with a number of restaurants who just sold out of food on during the festival, so it really was like a significant increase in business for them. And since then, we've had a number of restaurant owners reach out being like, hey, can you share contact information for these res for these musicians? We would love to hire them to play at other events at our space. So seeing the way that our programming can proliferate a sort of like a network as opposed to thinking a network that's sort of generative and self-generative as opposed to relying too heavily on this sort of, you know, top-down you know, thinking exclusively about money and funding from the, from like a municipality or what have you. Um, it's about activating and supporting networks of connection and organizing, which then also mean that this like proliferation of connection becomes a, a you know, it, it it does so much. You know, our, our kind of analysis is that in the long term, this really is work about about public health, about civic engagement, about educational attainment, um, uh, and it's as much really seeing Music City as much as a community organizing strategy, as much as a, like a specifically an arts program or something. You know, I want to bring it back a bit and ask, how did you guys make these connections between like the artists and restaurants? Was there like just a giant Zoom meeting? How did you guys connect all these people together? Yeah, yeah, so it you know it comes through. Uh, we've been there. Are, this happens at so many different levels. Um, we've been doing Music City for five some years now, and it's so you know part of it's just recognizing the the orga way that organic connections happen through through doing this kind of work. One example is the music festival in particular. You know, Margo and I started as the two two organizers of the festival. The first couple of years, it was really just the two of us working on it. But each year, we'd get a little bit of interest from a couple of the musicians that we would bring on to perform at the festival. And so maybe the third year we did the festival, all of a sudden we had a group of musicians who were excited to work on it with us. And that's grown over the years. So this past year, we had 10, a group of 10 Ten people, mixed of mostly musicians, okay. a couple of people who just love music a lot, um, all of whom either from Orange originally or living in Orange now, connected to Orange in some meaningful way. Um, so thinking about the ways that 
you know, folks come to an event and then they get curious and they sort of, you know, get looped into yeah. this sort of network, organically growing networks. In terms of then, you know, the, the connections between restaurants and musicians, a lot of it, you know, that team in this last, to, to tell sort of the story of this last festival, our team, which includes musicians, some of these musicians as well, we, we walked the city as a form of kind of preparing and designing this festival. Uh, we walked Main Street, we walked Central Avenue, we, we, we learned together, we read one of Yuvo's co-founders' books, Mindy Fuller Love just wrote a book on Main Street. So we kind of studied the importance of Main Street as a space of connection and vitality and life in the city. And then we walked Orange's Main Streets, Main Street, Central Avenue, Valley Street. By walking around the city, we, we got to stop in at these restaurants and meet with the restaurant owners. Um, we learned about, you know, realized how, for example, how important Lincoln Avenue is to connecting Central Ave and Main Street. Uh, so we, we do this work of, of being in the city, of walking the city, of talking with people, um, getting to know people, entering into real relationship with them. Then the event itself arrives um, and the, you know, so the music, you know, we have different groups of musicians in the same space as the restaurant owners. And it becomes a space of very fluidly being able to connect folks. Um, you know, we, Cezanne knows a, a, a soca band and a guy who plays Steel Pan, and so we booked that band at this place, Sarah, Sarah's Cafe Trimbago, this Trinidadian cafe. that we, we had initially met through one of our walks. We stopped in this cafe. Sarah was very excited to hear about the music festival and ended up giving our team free doubles. Failed mm. to pay for food at this restaurant since. She she just keeps giving it to us. Uh, she loved the festival a lot. She was one of the restaurants that just sold out of food on that weekend and really loved the music. And so afterwards, you know, when I went to get food there one time, I was like, Sarah, no, please let me pay this time. And she said, no, 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 no. It's free as long as you give me the contact information for the guy playing Steel Pan. So now they're connected. Sarah's going to hire them to play on Trinidadian Independence Day at the restaurant. So it, it, there's a, an organic component here that comes out of building trust and solidarity. I want to also yeah. mention that, you know, we, we, it's been a tough year for restaurants and we recognize also we're, we function as a nonprofit, University of Orange, so we have access to, to sort of philanthropic dollars. So we've, we, you know, in working on the festival and in building relationships with restaurant owners, we've ended up paying for renewal permit fees for outdoor dining. We actually ended up replacing or are in the process of replacing a restaurant's window that's been badly damaged for a long time and was causing them to get repeated fines from the city of Orange, who are not providing any resources to help this restaurant fix their windows. So we've you know, we're showing up for our neighbors. We're we're demonstrating and practicing solidarity, and it builds a deep trusting relationship. Um, and that yeah. then, as we are sharing our enthusiasm, yeah. and our commitment to musicians as well, that commitment to musicians starts to become reciprocated by these restaurants as we enter into this meaningful partnership. Yeah. And then the other thing I'd add there is that then there's also a level of very intentional connection. After our festival back in October, we hosted a series of story circles where we invited musicians mm -hmm. and organizers 
to to enter a Zoom room the you know where we had a kind of facilitated conversation about what our experience of the festival was. Um, so you know we're we're quite intentional about building in these spaces of debriefing and sharing our learning more explicitly with one another, um, uh-huh. which which yields a, again a different kind of connection, a different kind of trust, a different kind of commitment. Um, so to think about you know this part, this kind of idea of network is there's an organic component and there's an intentional component, but it's about making these multivalent possibilities for connecting because not every not everyone's going to be happy entering or able to enter the same space different kinds of connections come out of different points of contact in different spaces right so it's it's in a way about sort of creating this abundant like uh, a sort of like many many opportunities for different kinds and levels of connection some at a very small scale, some at a much larger scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can tell from talking with Doug and Margot that they had a knack for connecting with people and building an organic network. It's even more impressive that they were able to bring together so many different cultural and ethnic groups, considering challenges such as language barriers and the divisive political climate. So, of course, I had to ask them about their thought process going into this endeavor. If I can kind of preface this briefly and then send things over to you, Margot. Uh, oh, the no, first thing okay. is really knowing knowing the history and knowing why this segregation and silo, why like why these silos are, are the way they are. And we really root the work that we do in um, an understanding that the American city has been systematically and, and ruthlessly sorted by class and mm. by race by decades and decades of damaging and racist and classist urban policy that has intentionally segregated, intentionally separated, in particular, low-income peoples of different ethnic or racial backgrounds. Uh, I think the age age segregation is also a huge factor in this. Uh, You know, it's it's a... Simultaneously recognizing how intense and intentional that process has been and how huge it is but then also recognizing that you know it, it is a it is a thing that has been designed and has been acted intentionally and that therefore by through design and through intentional acting we can we can um, address that and a part of our analysis yeah. of how to address that comes from Mindy Fuller Love's sort of um, book of an alchemy in this field that University of Orange practices of respiration urbanism um, which um, so yeah recognizing that history hand in hand comes with recognizing that everything we need to address this problem of silo and segregation um, is already here so hmm. and, and the, what we need to address this is in residents' lived experiences, skill sets, knowledge, passions. Uh, it's through really this idea of asset-based community development of lifting up, connecting, aligning, celebrating, and supporting the resources and assets and experiences and passions of of, of the people that make this place that we begin to address this. Music and food are two of the main 
ways that that culture is expressed and people uh they're often their ways of, of bringing people together um and i think that they're that you know it's the combination of that has been very important um towards expression of our multi uh, our our multi generational multi ethnic you know community in in orange that analysis of the the ways that music and food work here comes from this place uh, very specifically and it's not some sort of expected universal idea that we're imposing uh mm-hmm. it's really in response to people and place and it's responding yeah. to what's already there not trying to impose which is i think where what we're doing differs from you know a lot of the sort of mainstream of quote unquote creative placemaking which i think brings in a much more kind of colonial understanding of a certain kind of art form being good for a place for xyz reasons uh-huh. uh and i you know that when when it's approached from that angle it becomes just as extractive just as colonial and ends up being a kind of like precursor to gentrification and displacement <laughs> um so without this analysis both of history but also of of working from a place of kind of grassroots assets grassroots resources lifting up what is already there uh you know it's a very slippery slope if you're not operating from that yeah could you talk about that a bit more i think that's a very interesting idea of like you know um like that differentiation you kind of make between like how creative place making typically is and what you're trying to do could you talk a little bit more about that like i i think it's become you know for a while this is maybe a little controversial but i think now as is demonstrated by you know often by some of the language you know especially in like nonprofit or philanthropic spheres this kind of shift in language away from the idea of placemaking to placekeeping uh but mm-hmm. i think that shift you know came from recognizing that you know a lot of these early placemaking creative placemaking initiatives ended up you know ended up in essence being sort of funneling little bits of resources into communities like orange to kind of you know keep you know into little artist communities mural programs things like this just to keep places active until the conditions change such that you know luxury apartment developers are now interested in these spaces and then we saw this in orange too this youth arts collective orange inc got very quickly displaced and and evicted basically from the space they were in as soon as as soon as the nonprofit that owned that space could bring in organizations that were going to pay more rent you know and overnight you know that youth arts collective was given two weeks to move out two weeks later an all white architecture firm had taken up residency in the same building and this is a this is a a practice that we see time and time again and it comes back to margo's point about fundamental attitudes towards the arts where i feel like creative placemaking really sees arts as a tool to leverage as a as a thing to leverage or as like a placeholder or as a surface some sort of surface thing and then as soon as conditions change the same artists are seen as completely dispensable and are pushed out and and you know it it yeah. comes from a place actually not really valuing 
not really valuing the yeah. arts, which is also to say not really valuing the lives and lived experiences of a particular group of people. Yeah. Uh, so creative placemaking to me has always had this kind of pernicious element of, of like a, a precursor to gentrification, and, and you can see that all around the nation very prominently yeah. in a lot of high-profile cases. Our work here, by grounding what you might call creative placemaking work in this broader analysis of restoration urbanism, which is, is, you know, to put it simply, this recognition of this long history and this learning of this history of racist and classist urban policy, but then, but then the flip side of that being asset-based community development and that everything that we need to solve these issues comes from people in place, comes from the communities that live in our case, in Orange and have lived in Orange. And that yeah. restoration urbanism anchors creative placemaking and it prevents, it sort of anchors it and acts as accountability. We use what we have here. Uh, that's the difference between our program in Orange and other programs um, around the world. I think in looking at our specifically our Music City program, uh, the idea that you don't have to bring people or big names from outside into this community to make it, you know, work or to, to you don't need to, we can lift up what we have here already. And that, that's a big, a big difference in, in perspective, uh, from most, um, artistic communities. I mean, everywhere, I mean, most, you know the the, the usual um, the usual uh, thing is that you have a big art center and you have a convention center or some kind of big hall where you you invite outsiders to come in and bring their musical talents you know to the community. This is in our case we're like okay we're we're using the musical talents that we have in the community uh, to to to. Uh, and and showcasing that and highlighting it. So We've been thinking a lot about regenerative agriculture in a number of ways in the context of the pandemic and sort of learning about how COVID has, you know, these coronaviruses are sort of, you know, emerging mm -hmm. in part because of the devastation agribusiness has wreaked on our, our ecosystem and thinking about the ways that this notion of regenerative agriculture is applied to that that is like a returning, a re, you know, a, a practice of agriculture that returns nourishment and resources and, you know, is not an extractive model of agriculture. And I think that mm -hmm. there's a similar kind of parallel with the sort of cultural work we're doing. And so in a way mm -hmm. to think about Music City also as a model of regenerative culture, of ways of working with music and musicians that are first and foremost centered on on supporting supporting and kind of returning yeah like a more yeah. sort of rooted and regenerative form of cultural wealth production to, yeah. that is always cycling back into the everyday fabric of the life of a city um wow. yeah that's sort of a, a a a fringe thought for now but it's something we're working through <laughs> and thinking but it, it is yeah. true i mean our emphasis on 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 music as an everyday practice. I mean, mm -hmm. as, as a part of life, that it belongs well, to everyone. 
there's this one neighborhood in Orange called the Valley Art, that's called the Valley. And there's been a big push to kind of brand it as a, an arts district. Um, but when, you know, it's, it's so clear there are these like gallery spaces, these institutionalized gallery spaces that have been funded under the auspices of creative placemaking. And you go to any one of these galleries, and, you know, most folks in these galleries aren't from Orange. The artists, some of them are from Orange, a lot of them aren't. Um, they're kind of rarefied spaces. And the conversation in these nonprofit kind of creative placemaking spaces are about how how to find local artists and bring them into these galleries and, like, how to get people to engage with the arts in this way without realizing that, you know, the Valley is largely home to, to working class, like, Hispanic communities. And you go, you know, you walk down any street on a Friday night during the summer and there are these backyard parties that are full of music and life and artistic and creative expression. And this, like, this idea that somehow the goal of creative placemaking is to bring that into gallery spaces or whatever, <laughs> as opposed to recognizing that this actually, like, it's these, you know, it's in restaurants. It's, it's, it's in, you know, Palacio del Pollo's amazing chicken place in the valley. It's in these backyard parties. It's in these spaces where people are making and building their own infrastructure, their own ways of living and celebrating and communing. Like that's, that's the, that's the wellspring and any, any kind of institutionalized cultural or creative work needs to be regenerative in terms of restoring and supporting the ways that people want to live their lives. Um, And I think that's a crucial distinction there. One year after this interview, Music City is still alive and well. I caught up with Doug Ferran in early April while the organization was in the midst of planning its sixth annual music festival. There's been a lot of changes in Orange in the last year, and while the group has run into some challenges and setbacks, for example, four restaurants the organization worked with in the past have closed in the last couple of months, the group was able to secure permits from the city to move forward with the festival. We hope you enjoyed this Shelter Force story. For more in-depth coverage on housing, policy, and community development, be sure to check out our website at www.shelterforce.org. See you next time.